a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Welcome to the Menopause and Cancer podcast, where we speak with cancer patients, survivors, and incredible medical professionals to help us find solutions to our symptoms and ideas to improve our health. My name is Danny Binnington, and today we're going to be talking about anxiety and how we can tackle it. But of course, we can't just talk about anxiety without also touching on depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. For me, anxiety has been one of the most debilitating symptoms, and I now understand that I would have very much qualified to have some help for it. Panic attacks, the constant catastrophizing over my future and my future health and over not being alive and not seeing my children start school. Every single ache and pain in my body was always the worst case scenario. And I always felt I should just cope and get on with it. Today, we're joined by the most incredible doctor, Dr. Nina Fuller-Chevelle. She's an Oxford-trained precision health and integrative medicine doctor. She's got seven degrees and over a decade of experience. She also comes with her own cancer experience. There is no one better equipped than Dr. Nina Chevelle to tackle this really difficult subject with us. But we're also joined by a whole group of the amazing people in our community who are here live with me on this recording. They're going to share with us how anxiety and depression influences them, the way it manifests in their body physically, mentally and emotionally. And they're also going to share with us some of the strategies that they have applied that have helped them so that we can all learn from one another, which is one of the most exciting things, I think, for us. This episode comes with a trigger warning. It was very much an eye-opener for many of the women who came onto our live call. So if this conversation triggers difficult feelings for you, we're going to link to great resources in the show notes that can help you move things forward. Do get help if you feel you need it. Nina, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode about anxiety. Please tell me that there is hope because I have been personally struggling with very severe anxiety for a long time now. Is there hope for us? Absolutely. There is so much that we can do for ourselves with the self-care and daily habits that we can put in place. And there's a whole ton of external resources that we can turn to. I feel my anxiety was my most debilitating and crippling symptom since my cancer diagnosis. And in my own case, it was very much my health anxiety, the anxiety that my cancer would return. Maybe it was meant compounded by menopause a few years down the line. I'm not sure we're going to tackle all of that with you. Can you explain to us what anxiety really means in a technical term? So everybody experiences anxiety very differently. And I think it's important to know that there are physical and mental health symptoms that come with anxiety. So people might think of anxiety as just worry, but it can also present itself as irritability, real problem in concentrating and restlessness, as well as very specific fears. So for example, scan-related anxiety, or like you're talking about fear of recurrence. So depending on how anxiety manifests in you, it might be very different to another person. And then there are physical health symptoms of anxiety as well. And they're really important not to forget because sometimes people can disregard them and put them down to treatment or put them down to something else. And that could be things, very simple things like maybe chest tightness, feeling like something heavy sitting on your chest, maybe feeling a little bit more short of breath, maybe feeling palpitations. So feeling of your heartbeat, maybe going more strongly than you usually would expect. Uh, people might have butterflies in the stomach, right? They might get GI symptoms. They might feel a bit nauseous all the time. Uh, and that nausea might actually get worse if they're put into a really difficult situation. People might get headaches. They might get trouble sleeping. Uh, they might also get more fatigued more easily. So there's a whole spectrum of things. I mean, you can read lists and lists of symptoms. But I think if you are really concerned that you might have anxiety, it's well worth going online, going and finding the GAD7 tool, that's G-A-D-7, 
and actually taking yourself through the scoring system. It's a well-validated tool that GPs use in primary care to screen for anxiety. And then it gives you something to go to your GP or other primary care provider with to say, I actually am concerned that might be experiencing anxiety. Could you help me? There is a real difference between saying, I'm anxious and I have anxiety, please help me. Because for years, I thought it's normal, I'm anxious. I've had a cancer diagnosis as a young person, it's normal, I'm anxious. But to move into the space of saying, I have anxiety, I need help, is a big jump. And I'd like for us to explore that maybe a little bit further down um, in the conversation. So we can diagnose ourselves with anxiety with the GAD-7 tool, right? Is that a good thing when you're really anxious? Do we want to self-diagnose? It's not a self-diagnosis. I would always say it's the first step before you seek support. So it is not something you want to do by yourself and then sit and ruminate on. Absolutely not. But if you are concerned, it is a first step before you go and see a primary care provider or your psychological support person or seek other support because it gives you some concrete tools and a score to be able to say, yes, my symptoms actually really do warrant some support and some help. Uh, And as we know, trying to find help sometimes for our mental health can be very challenging in the currently overburdened healthcare system. So having already come prepared actually helps us advocate for ourselves and helps it not to get dismissed. Oh, well, you have cancer, you're anxious, because it's just not as simple as that. There are people who will have a kind of normal worry that's related to cancer, but it does not affect their daily life and their daily function to the extent that people will actually have the anxiety impairing their ability to cope with life, okay? So I think there's a spectrum of, like you said, maybe I'm just an anxious person thing. Yeah. And also to the point of where you are so anxious that going to a scan sends you into a complete tears and you're going, oh my goodness, I think I might have to cancel it or I might have to push it back. Because that affects the way that you're able to follow up with your treatment and the way you're able to follow up with your treatment schedule. So if you're not able to go outside because actually you're really too overwhelmed and anxious to get outside and meet people socially, that's impairing your daily function. And that requires a very different support to, oh, I'm just a little bit anxious in that particular situation. It doesn't actually affect my daily life. Thanks so much for listening so far. It means a lot. I make this podcast to support other women who faced a similar struggle to me. So if you know someone who you think might benefit from listening, please share the link with them. I would really appreciate it. I would love to know because we're joined by over 40 people from our community on our conversation today. I would love to know from everyone else what their symptoms of anxiety are. So if you at home just put into the chat box all of the things that you think are to do with your anxiety, your feelings, your sensations, your mood changes. We, I would love to just read out a few of the things that people experience whilst everyone takes to their chat. So use the chat function, please. Nina, you've also got a cancer story. And, and were you anxious when you were diagnosed with cancer? I turned my anxiety into action. You know me, right? <laughs> That's how I, but I think the first step for me and something that I've struggled with anxiety actually much worse, to be honest, before cancer, when I worked in the NHS um, as a doctor, because there were situations that we all experienced during training that are highly anxiety inducing, and it's appropriate to be anxious at those times. Um, And also sometimes where care provision is not fantastic and you're going into a situation where you know your shift, for example, isn't well covered, you know, there would be times I'd be driving into work going, I am really, really feeling very anxious about this because I've got about to face 12 hours on minimal staffing. So what I did learn to do, and it would really help me, is to actually acknowledge and name the anxiety. Because quite often we are so good at pushing it away. But we've got to remember that law of physics, right? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So the harder we try and shove the anxiety away into a cupboard, the harder it pushes back and tries to represent itself. Okay, so anxiety is a normal defense mechanism, actually, by our bodies. It's our nervous system saying, I'm worried about something, something might be a threat. So if we actually take a minute and go, oh, that feeling in my chest or in my stomach, 
that's anxiety. My restless legs right now as I'm sitting there waiting for my exam, that's anxiety. If we take a moment to acknowledge it, that actually disempowers anxiety a little bit because we've taken the time to name it and acknowledge it rather than pushing it away in the cupboard. And then if we can then take some good tools, some good self-care tools that we could use on a daily basis to apply to it, you've acknowledged it and you've dealt with it in a very different way rather than shoving it in the cupboard and going, I'm going to run away somewhere else and I'm going to ignore it or I'm going to distract it because it will catch up with you. It is still there. It's just shoved away. Yeah. I had many times where I thought I must call the ambulance. If I don't call the ambulance now, I'm going to die there and then. And once my husband said, I think you've got a panic attack. And as soon as he said, I think you've got a panic attack, I thought, I might have a panic attack. Maybe I'm not dying of a brain seizure or something crazy that I was making up in my head. And I was reading the symptoms and I thought this could be it. It was really enlightening for me, but I almost feel it was too late because up until that point, I had struggled for so many years with these really intrusive thoughts. And I think for myself, I wish I had had help. And so I don't know whether I didn't ask for the help or whether people didn't pick up on how debilitating my anxiety was, but I feel it's one of the symptoms that I didn't have help with. And so I don't do very well on anxiety. So let me see how other people at home are doing. Louise says it manifests in panic, tight chest, crying, low mood, difficulty concentrating, says Caroline, which makes me feel very frustrated with myself and then makes me feel anxious. Someone says, I feel like I'm on a fast whirling fairground ride and I can't get off, tearful shaking and churring. Unrealistic thoughts, every pain of any linked to cancer reoccurrence, Carolyn says, loss of appetite, answers, feeling sick, heart thumping, ringing ears, worrying mind, catastrophizing, tight chest, holding breath. Anxiety symptoms are palpitations, panic attacks, difficulty swallowing, IBS symptoms and sleeplessness. Someone else says, complete horrible feeling in my gut instantly and I've had it in my chest and breathe when really bad. Anxiety wakes me through the night. And the list goes on and on and on, not in people's stomachs, catastrophizing about the smallest things. What do others think of me? I'm not good enough. All of these awful thoughts, insomnia, irritability, loss of appetite, and I could go on. Does this echo what you see in your practice when you help patients? Absolutely. And I think that's also important to acknowledge that anxiety might not present by itself. It might also present as being comorbid or coexistent with depression. So when we talk about anxiety and depression, yes, they're slightly different to each other, but it can actually they can become coexistent in the same person. So we normally think of anxiety as kind of more worry, dread, that type of feeling, and depression is kind of more low mood. Uh, and maybe lower energy and a feeling of hopelessness. But there's no reason why the two can't can't be together. And when you've read out that list, I could actually pick up both in some of the people mm -hmm. who were talking about it. And the other big elephant in the room is trauma. So mm -hmm. the other thing that you mentioned, for example, so intrusive thoughts. So there are also really important steps to follow if you think that you're actually experiencing more of a PTSD type pattern. Okay, rather than just anxiety and depression, I mean just in the nicest way because trauma actually requires very, very specific interventions. And just giving somebody, you know, mood support or anxiety support isn't going to resolve their active trauma. So I always think if if possible, and if you're struggling, it's really important to ask for psych oncology input, you know, ask what's available at your local hospital. Go to the charity websites. There are plenty of wonderful charities who provide psychology support. You know, we know obviously Future Dreams House does things, and there's also Penny Braun UK will do something. You know, Yes to Life provides some support. So the number of charities who can offer that support. So don't suffer in silence. Whatever it is you think you have, whether it's anxiety, depression, or trauma, seek proper assessment because the treatment can really change people's lives really really no matter what kind of cancer situation you're in and you know i work with stage four diagnosis a lot right but there are people who can live with that diagnosis and not be debilitated every day by anxiety and depression so it's really important to know that whatever diagnosis you have whatever stage you're at 
whatever treatment you're going through, you do not need to suffer with mental health related symptoms on top of your treatment. Wow, that is such a powerful statement. I wish I could have that engraved on my notice board to the right, left, front and back of me. It's really, really hopeful and really powerful. Before we go into the strategies, can you clarify a little bit more what is the difference between depression and anxiety? Because from hearing what you've just said, I do actually think I was very much depressed and very anxious at both times for years. What's the difference? So there, there will be some crossovers. So there are some common physical symptoms that are common to both. So for example, lack of energy can be quite common both to depression and anxiety. But usually depression is much more about having a flatter mood. It's more about having kind of real lack of energy and feeling of hopelessness as well. Whereas anxiety is a much more activated state, if that makes sense. So if you think of depression as a lower, flatter state, anxiety is much more about kind of more irritability, feeling more wired. You know, like you said, can be catastrophizing, can be feeling generally more restless and activated. And within the same day, you can be experiencing symptoms of both. So I would say it's almost slightly artificial trying to pick them apart. If you're experiencing Mm. symptoms, just go and get those symptoms assessed from that perspective. And whatever label you get given, you need to actually think about how do I support myself, both with external support, but also what kind of self-care tools can I give myself to be able to manage? Because to me, this is something we have to work on every day. I have to work on my mental health every day. I work in probably the toughest areas of medical care. And I have to be able to take care of myself because if I don't, I cannot take care of my patients. So this is something that for all of us is an essential to build into our routines. What kind of self-care support do I need? And then what kind of external support do I need at a specific time to manage my depression, anxiety or trauma? And can menopause make the experience of anxiety and depression worse? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, and particularly, of course, for those of us who've gone through menopause very suddenly, so who've had this induced by surgical menopause or by medical menopause, where we get ovarian functional suppression injections, as well as things like tamoxifen, if both of those are combined and you're suddenly in menopause, it becomes very, very difficult. So I've had my own experience of menopause. I went in and out of menopause. So mine was a reversible journey because I was diagnosed at 33 and I had an ovarian function suppression during my chemo. And then it took about 18 months for my cycles to return after that. And we can definitely say that mood-wise, for most of my patients, those who go through very abrupt menopause find that quite difficult to cope with. But that's why we prepare and buffer and support them throughout it. Even with people who are already in menopause, if you've already struggled with a menopausal transition, and then you might get another medication layered on top of it, like an aromatase inhibitor, letrozole and astrozole, people also find their mood can extra dip during that time as well. So it's important to be alert for those symptoms and to actually just bring all of the problem, the whole person picture to a professional and say, okay, what? how can you support me with this? And who is this professional? We have a lady, I know, we have a lady here um, who I've been working with this year who never even saw an oncologist, even when she was prescribed tamoxifen. She was just sent away with a prescription saying, take this little white pill, see you in 10 years. It's mad, right? We are so, you know, the healthcare system is so overstretched. Who is this person that can then help us with anxiety? Like if we don't feel we can even talk to an oncologist, if we're put on medication like that, then the hope that someone can help us with just anxiety is is deflating sometimes, isn't it? It is. And I think this is really the job of the healthcare service to really look at care provision and what we're investing our money in. I think that becomes really, really important. And also the lack of investment in survivorship care is my biggest bugbear full stop because I think people think, oh, just because you finished primary, ca- primary cancer treatment, hey, presto, you're cured, off you go. Actually, that's Mm. when we know most of anxiety and depression can really hit people because they're running on survival mode, really, throughout their treatment. And suddenly they sit down and the reality hits them and all the support is withdrawn at the same time. But talking about who the healthcare professionals are. So your GP is one port of call because they usually have access to things like some of the CBT treatments that can be very helpful 
for anxiety and low mood as well. You can also self-refer in some areas. So it, it's well worth actually having a look for self-referral schemes. So for CBT in particular, the number of referral schemes in the country. The other thing is to say to see a psychologist, um, that would be a really, really important intervention. And there are a number of hospitals who do have psycho-oncology services. So it's worth asking. It's worth asking your um, oncology care nurse, whoever is your CNS, your, your nurse specialist, or actually just Googling your hospital and seeing if they have a psycho-oncology service and if you can speak to them. And again, charities will also offer quite often psycho-oncology input. So Maggie's centers can offer psychology services or counseling services, depending on the level of intervention required. So I would say GP, psychology, and then charity services who provide interventions such as psychology or counseling or other therapies. Yeah. And the lovely Liz just put in the chat that her oncologist referred her to uh, to the hospital psychology team. And she found that really, really helpful. So for anyone who's still under an oncology or a breast care team or any other clinical nurse specialist, they might also be able to refer. Absolutely. So what strategies can we do ourselves and apply ourselves? And where do we need help from the outside? Like, I want to know everything from daily actions to medication. What can okay, I do? Well, let's start with the, I guess, the external Because <gasps> I think that's, okay. that's very well established in the guidelines. And so we actually need, know, need to know what we're asking for. So there are NICE stepped care guidelines. NICE is a UK organization that kind of covers the guidance for medical care. So usually uh, we start off with kind of very gentle intervention. So if somebody is not significantly impaired in their daily life, people might be sent to a group intervention, for example, or be given some resources to start off with. They're usually CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy resources. Now, if somebody actually wants to be able to go further than this, then they usually are referred for either relaxation technique group or one-to-one intervention or more commonly CBT. So CBT is kind of the main thing that NHS offers for anxiety. From the medication perspective, this really should be something that we trial after we have tried good psychological therapy. And I'll explain other options for psychological therapy as well. But medication-wise, the first line is usually sertraline. Um, and then there are other medications in that class called serotonin, um, reuptake inhibitors, so SSRIs. If those don't work, then usually the second step is something called SNRIs, and these are serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitors, and they're much heavier drugs, so things like venlafaxine, for example. And then third-line drugs are things like pregabalin. Um, again, all the medications have their own side effects, so it's really important to discuss with your prescriber what those side effects are, what the risks are, because sometimes those medications can initially result in activation of symptoms. So actually people can start feeling more anxious rather than less anxious for about a week or two when they start the medication. We also need to be aware of the fact that younger patients can have increased risk of other problems, such as suicidal thoughts with some of these meds, and they need to be carefully monitored. Um, and of course, we need to consider the whole other lot of medication we might be on and what might be interacting with those. So when you go to a consultation about a medication for your anxiety, it is important that you keep all of those in things in mind. We do not recommend benzodiazepines and they are things like Valium, right? So diazepam and other zepams, so lorazepam, because they're very addictive. So we might be using them at the time of a crisis or when somebody is having a really you know, a major panic attack before going into a scan or something like that, but they should never be used regularly because the addictive potential is very, very high and they don't actually solve anybody's problems. So they just sedate the problem. So that's medications really bit, but uh, returning to therapy, there's actually a number of different therapy options. So if CBT hasn't worked for you for whatever reason, don't assume that you're a hopeless therapy case, okay? <laughs> there are many, many other therapies that can help. And when we look at the SIO um, ASCO guidelines, uh, there are some complementary therapies that can help. And the ASCO guidelines, which is the American Society for Clinical Oncology, has also issued therapy guidelines. 
So from therapy perspective, we can look at CBT, but we can also look at something called behavioral activation. We can look at ACT, so A-C-T, and that's called acceptance and commitment therapy. We can look at structured physical activity programs because guess what? That also helps, which is really, really important. Uh, and you might want to also be referred to things like mindfulness-based interventions. So that's mindfulness-based stress reduction programs, as an example. So there's a whole world of psychological therapies that, to be honest, psychologists is probably better talking about than I am. But don't assume that just because one therapy or one psychological approach hasn't helped, that you shouldn't try something else. So my personal preference, and they're very they're difficult to find, those psychologists, but is to see somebody who is quite integrative in their approach, which means that they're trained in using multiple things and they can do a pick and mix for you individually. So there might be somebody who is trained in you know, CBT and ACT and compassion-focused therapy and mindfulness, which means that that psychologist is able to then create a tailored program for you depending on how they assess you and what they think you need. Um, mm. So I would say that's kind of the medications and the conventional therapy front to start with. Yeah. When I went to the GP once, and I'm not sure if I'm oversharing, but I'm just going to say as it is, I was prescribed some beta blockers. Where do they fit in? So beta blockers, again, are symptomatic. So we can use them sometimes. Usually they're used when you have other symptoms. So if you're particularly presenting with palpitations, so usually they're used preferentially for people who present with palpitations, or they're also used for people who present with migraines, because there is some evidence around beta blockers and migraine prophylaxis. So it may be that your GPs looked at your case and said, okay, well, we're going to do this. Now, again, these are all blocking symptoms. So beta blockers, what they do is that they actually block the effect of adrenaline on its receptors. So when we get anxious, we get a release of cortisol and adrenaline or adrenaline. And those beta blockers block that action. They don't actually stop you releasing those stress chemicals. though. Mm. And nor do they help you manage that long term. So again, they have a place but they should not ever, ever replace psychological support and social support. Um, and we should always be thinking about those things first. And that's what drives me slightly mad um, mm. in the conventional world is where you, some of my patients would go and see somebody and they will say, okay, well, I'm anxious and depressed about this. And if somebody goes, okay, fine, have a sertraline. And I'm like, well, how about I understand where you are. I can empathize with where you are. You've just been given a cancer diagnosis. What kind of social support do you have? How are you coping at home? What kind of psychological therapies have you had so far? What can I offer you first before I just shove a sertraline at you and run away? Okay, because that is not the beyond the end. And all the guidelines are very clear that psychological intervention should come first. Doesn't mean medication doesn't play a role. It can be very important for people to control their symptoms, but it should not be the be all and the end all of anxiety support. All of the um, strategies you've just listed, they're all, they've got, all got evidence. They've all got right lots of studies behind them. Many of the studies have included people with a history of cancer. Is there a hierarchy to which of these interventions has performed better? than one another? Or is it dependent on who you are as a patient, what you're more responsive to? Yeah, so usually the in terms of hierarchy of evidence, all of them have really good evidence. So when we're looking at the ASCO guidelines, and we can link to those guidelines in your show notes, they're all equal. Now, in terms of severity, sometimes when the symptoms are more severe, we might pick one therapy over another. So sometimes things like interpersonal therapy are offered more intensively for people with more severe symptoms. But that's really up to the psychologist to decide. They will normally be able to assess you, see where you're at, look at your GAD7 score, look at your whole history, and be able to then pick an intervention that works for you. And as I said, change that intervention as well, because not everything works for everybody. So that's kind of the more conventional therapy um, side of things and the medication side of things. And there's lots of other things that we can also do as well. So that's the guideline that I was involved in, Danny. if you want me to talk about that one. I would love to. And just before we start, why doesn't everyone put into the chat again what they have tried? Like we have just had messages from people that have really debilitating symptoms like I have or I have had. 
And I want to know if people have tried maybe any of the strategies you've suggested and I can read them out later and also maybe put whether it's been helpful or not helpful and just let us know so we can really be guided in our conversation by you. Uh, okay, Nina, let's go to what you are involved with because I think that's really exciting. So, yes, so the Society for Integrative Oncology has collaborated with the American Society of Clinical Oncology to produce a guideline that really looked at the integrative care of symptoms of anxiety and depression in people with cancer. What we are finding very interesting is actually there's a number of things that could be useful clinically that there aren't many randomized control style tri trials on. And that's a problem because while we know something might work, unless a significant number of more than one randomized clinical trial, we can't put it in the guidelines. So that's a limitation of any guideline that we've got to remember. And that investment doesn't come because natural products or natural interventions don't carry the same patentable structure that medications do. So whenever we look at this sort of guideline, we've got to remember that we are hampered by the lack of investment in complementary and integrative therapy research. But looking at it, mindfulness-based interventions came out very strongly for managing anxiety during and after active cancer treatment. And that can include things like mindfulness-based stress reduction or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And there are a number of these courses available. And again, it may be worth speaking to the charities that you might be involved with or looking again locally for any of those MBSR or MBCT courses. The other thing that's quite interesting is, in, particularly within breast cancer, yoga has been very well studied for mental health support. So within that, that has an intermediate quality evidence for supporting people with breast cancer during active treatment and after treatment. Now, it may well be very beneficial for people with other cancers, but we don't have the same evidence. So we really need investment in yoga research and other cancer types to be able to conclude more firmly about whether that could be of benefit to people. In other things, looking at relaxation therapies, particularly during active treatment, they have good evidence. So there may be different relaxation therapies that could be offered by your complementary health center or by you know somebody who's got a nursing qualification who might be running groups. Progressive muscle relaxation is quite commonly offered in a number of different areas. So that's maybe something to look at in particular. And then looking at more broadly, um, some of the lower quality interventions, and that doesn't mean that they don't work. It just means we have less research on those. So, for example, music therapy um, mm -hmm. can be really helpful during treatment for some people. And again, that's very different to just listening to music. Music therapy, uh, people are usually very well qualified in offering that. So we mustn't forget the power of that. Well, we know how we feel, right, when we put a good bit of your own self-music therapy, but being guided through that can be a really important tool, um, which is quite often not as easily as available as we would like. Other side of things, acupuncture post-treatment can really help people with breast cancer in particular from the anxiety perspective, and Tai Chi and Qigong more broadly, and again, in the post-treatment setting. Uh, and the final bit, really, reflexology has a low quality of evidence. Again, not so many randomized control trials, but it can be used to support anxiety both during treatment and after treatment as well. And sometimes we talked about acute situations, right, going for scans mm. or going for procedures. Um, within that setting, we have two main recommendations. One is hypnosis that's got an intermediate quality of evidence can really help people with procedure-based anxiety. And also lavender essential oil inhalation. It has a low quality of evidence, but again, it doesn't mean that it can't be beneficial. Uh, and it's a very low risk intervention. That's another thing yeah. we've got to remember. So this is a kind of a really brief gallop through it. And we will link to the actual algorithm so that people can look at the different options um, on the website as well. But I think it's important to realize most of those things like yoga, for example, we can access that through charity support resources or our local um, cancer center sometimes. Um, wonderful Vicky Fox is running those free classes online. So we can access those things and then we can self-practice. We can use those techniques in daily life, like the breathwork exercises that yoga comes with to be able to manage our anxiety. 
One thing I will mention, it's not in the guidelines, but I will also say that in clinical practice, I use a much wider toolkit that's what's in the guidelines. And that's because I might not have randomized control trials of more than 50 people or more than one randomized control trial in cancer patients, but I have other randomized control trials in healthy populations or populations with other reasons for depression and anxiety. And I also see them effective in clinical practice. And that might include things like acupuncture, it might include things like EFT, emotional freedom techniques or tapping. Um, it might include herbal medicine, it might include nutrient supplementation. So depending on the individual kind of presentation and what I think might be beneficial, I might draw on different evidence to be able to actually talk to them about some of the other things that we could try. We couldn't make any statements on those things during the guideline development process because there are not enough cancer-specific mm -hmm. randomized control trials with more than 50 patients. Mm -hmm. So more investment in research is my kind of final thing. If anybody has any links to funding or any interest in actually improving people's quality of life, because so much research goes into developing new treatments, which is wonderful. I don't think we're spending enough money in actually improving people's quality of life once they have the diagnosis. And we've got to be able to live well to be able to cope with all the treatments that people throw at us, right? A hundred percent. And you know what's so interesting listening to you? And at the very beginning of the conversation, we talked about how broad anxiety can present physically and emotionally. And looking at the treatments is as broad a spectrum of all the things that we can have help with externally or of the things that we can do ourselves. It is huge. And I wonder if there are people at home listening to this thinking, there's no way I want more medication. I don't want antidepressants. I've had so much medication or chemotherapy and radiotherapy. I don't want any more. And then it's really good to know that there are many other strategies. Other people might think, oh, I couldn't go to acupuncture every week. I haven't got the time or the resources or the energy. Um, or the financial resources to do this. And then a, a medication might be a great option. And it's knowing that we can probably do different things and a variety of things at the same time as well, isn't it? Hey, thank you for listening so far. This podcast has an amazing Facebook community full of inspiring women supporting each other and sharing their stories. Please come and be part of it. We'd love to have you in the group. Click the link in the show notes and come in now. Absolutely. And most of most of my patients who suffer with anxiety, they will always undergo psychological therapy alongside other things that we provide as well. Because to me, it's not an either or. It's about finding the right combination solution for you. And it might involve antidepressants and therapy and yoga. You know, there's nothing about combining the three of them. If that's what it takes to give you a good quality of life, to be able to get out and manage treatment and manage scans and feel like you're actually living rather than just barely surviving through the day, then that's what we have to do. And we each have to find our different path. And I think supporting ourselves with saying, I am going to advocate for myself. I'm going to get this treated. No, I'm not going to get dismissed. Oh, you have cancer, therefore you're anxious, bet. Because it's not fair. I find this incredibly unfair when people present with this diagnosis. You know, Oh, well, you have you have a really significant illness. You're anxious. Therefore, we're not going to help you with it. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. What we need to start asking, we need to start advocating for ourselves, saying, what kind of support can you provide me with? And if we just get given medication as an option, we need to say, okay, what else can you give me as an option? I might take you up on that medication, but what other psychological services can you refer me for? Can I self-refer to any of this? What do you know in the local area that might be available free? And I think that's where we really need to push it a little bit, particularly when yeah. we get just a pill shoved in our faces. We need to push back a little bit and say, okay, what else? Thank you for this. I'll consider my options. What else? Yeah, because when I then, and the beta blockers in my case came many years after my primary cancer diagnosis, I tried them. But the bad thing was they didn't turn my thoughts off. And I really needed something that turned that monkey brain off. And they didn't. They did really help me with those awful palpitations where I thought my heart would jump out of my mouth and my anxiety, you know, my heart just heart rate went through the roof sitting for appointments, but it didn't turn my mind off. But my GP never really offered me 
anything else anywhere. I want to know what people did at home now and what's helped them. I've been on sertraline for 12 years um, and I now realize it was perimenopause, still on it 12 years later. Another lady was saying CBT was really helpful. Another person saying um, she's on sertraline for her anxiety. A walk in the woods is always helpful and EFT is excellent. Someone else is saying therapy and CBT and sertraline saved my life. Reflexology, yoga, mindfulness, and deep breath work. Another person saying, I had six sessions of counseling offered by the NHS. It was very helpful following my chemo and then during my surgery. I also journal and practice yoga. Yay. CBD, mindfulness, and yoga, breathing. So CBD, this is something we haven't spoken about. What what do you know about CBD? Well, I'm not a cannabis clinician, so I, I think yeah. we're better off talking to Dr. Danny Gordon about this one because she is the, the best cannabis clinician from the integrative perspective. But um, I would caution CBD use a little bit, mainly because don't forget CBD can interact with medications. So do not self-prescribe CBD. Um, also, cannabis-based medications, including CBD, can interact with immunotherapy. And actually, in immunotherapy, we are seeing a safety signal where it can actually reduce survival um, in patients who are in immunotherapy. So if you are on immunotherapy, please do not take cannabis-based medication, whether it's CBD or anything else, without checking with your clinician. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't tend to use CBD as my first port of call, I have to say, because I've got herbal medicine and I've got a million other tools at my disposal. So it's not something I go to automatically. And I think it can be very useful for people, but it does need to be advised by somebody who actually understands what they're doing. And the quality of the products on the market, how are they sourced? How are they tested? It's an unregulated industry. That's part of the big problem with it. So picking up a CBD, I need to know that you've gotten it from somewhere that has good manufacturing practice, that the bottle contains what it says it contains. <laughs> Because, for example, they did a study on something different, on melatonin um, in the US and all those gummies because it's available over the counter there. And they found that the concentrations range hugely and you could not actually get what it said on the bottle. Mm. So CBD is very similar. They did a study in Italy looking at the different pharmaceutical products. So they, were say, they were saying, OK, I'm going to pharmaceutically analyze and see whether you've got the right concentration of CBD and a tiny proportion passed that test. So that's one thing I would really caution people on is get count, get proper professional recommendation, get a proper professional grade product, make sure it doesn't interact with your meds. Mm. And another lady just said, does eating Brazil nuts help with serotonin levels? So when we talk about depression, we often talk about serotonin levels. Can food, and in this case, Brazil nuts, actually make an impact? Or enough of an impact? Food, food is such a big topic. But what I would say, serotonin theory has been quite comprehensively debunked in depression, actually, over the last year or so. So actually, we don't think it's as simple as serotonin. Um, that theory has very much come from the fact that we've had drugs that target the serotonin pathway, and we feel that they sort of work. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of argument around moderate depression where they're actually they're pretty much just as good as placebo in most patients. And actually, they only really significantly provide benefit in severe depression, for example. Now, Brazil nuts and serotonin, I don't think anybody's done a study that showed a significant impact on serotonin. So I can't really say from a scientific evidence perspective, it would do it. I would say food has a major impact on our mood. And one of the really surprising things I have found going through the guideline research is there have only been a few studies on mood. And I'm like, hold on a second. How do we not look at nutrition, physical activity, lifestyle-based intervention for mood? We have a ton of evidence in the non-cancer population on this. How do we not study it? So that's really surprising. That's a gap that very much needs addressing. We know we have good evidence in the non-cancer population. And for the moment, until new evidence comes out, that's the evidence I use with my patients to be able to support their mood with nutrition. Mm, amazing. And it's so good that you make that differentiation of where we have evidence within the cancer population or in the normal population and know that there is a difference when we look at supporting us. 
A lady just said, I almost started to take an antidepressant recently and I may well still do this, but I turned a corner just doing things and I can help myself with exercise, meditation, nutrition, I think also helps. And what's so interesting about that, sometimes you are being given a lifeline, maybe a prescriptive drug, an antidepressant or something else. And just knowing that you've had that support can give you the confidence that you can do things, right? Absolutely. It's having that safety net and having having somebody on the other side say, I've got you, I hear you, I know there is support there. And I think those self-management techniques really need to come first. Like I was talking to a breast surgeon the other day and they were saying, well, I can't tell people to change their lifestyle at the same time as I give them their diagnosis and treatment plan. I said, you don't need to. But what you do need to say to people is that here is a diagnosis, here is your medical treatment plan. There are things you can do to support yourself. If you're interested, please let us know, we'll point you to some resources. Takes you 10 seconds to say that, it opens the door to the person to come back to that oncologist or that oncology nurse to say, I'm ready now, what can I do to support myself? And that's where, of course, apps like the Free OnCare app come in as well, because they provide free resources for people to be able to engage with themselves there's a two-week EFT program on there, a two-week mindfulness program. We put additional resources and links to free groups as well. So again, if you're struggling, that's also a really good port of call to go on there for free and actually use the resources there as well. Yeah, I put it into the show notes, but we can put it into the chat box. It's Onkyo. It's an amazing app for integrative precision medicine, really, and how you can help yourself post a cancer diagnosis for any type of cancer at any stage if you're interested in what you can do, all the toolboxes outside of your conventional medicine. Um, someone is asking, can you please tell us the difference and how do we know we've got post-traumatic stress disorder? We've talked about anxiety, depression, but what if it's PTSD and how do I know? So I would say if you're concerned, go, definitely go and see a professional because everybody presents slightly differently. But I think what we do know is there are some core symptoms that we can look at. One is things like intrusive thoughts or intrusive um, experiences. So things like flashbacks, for example, or repetitive intrusive thoughts are a very characteristic feature. Um, having something called hyperarousal, which means that you're constantly activated, you're constantly on the lookout, your nervous system is all a jiggle, effectively. That's another thing. And again, that's where anxiety crosses over, right? So you might be thinking, okay, it's just anxiety, but actually... If you are having trouble with flashbacks or intrusive thoughts, you really do need to be assessed for the PTSD. Um, changes in mood and changes in reactivity is an important one. Again, you might think it's just it's anxiety and depression, but actually it might be trauma and that needs to be tackled in a specific way. Other things might include problems with sleeping. Um, the other things that I think is really important for us to think about is the extent to which it impairs us. So... If it, you've you've had problems with anxiety before and it feels similar to your usual anxiety, that's a very different thing to saying, okay, actually, every time I approach a hospital, I get a flashback of that time I went in for my operation or I literally cannot force myself to go into that radiotherapy room because I am so traumatized by this and I really get a physical effect of saying I need to push back here. So I would say if you're looking at, there will be a crossover between anxiety and depression here. So low mood and hyperactivation or hyperarousal symptoms. There can be sleep problems. Um, but one of the key characteristic things is that kind of reliving experiences or that intrusion of thoughts. So if you're concerned, though, because PTSD is different for everybody, please go and see someone and say, I am worried about it. I really would like an assessment for it. And. Trauma is seriously problematic because not only because of what we are living now, but because it is a frozen response. It responds that continues to play out in our body and our nervous system until it is resolved. So it is the traumatic response itself needs to be tackled properly because just putting CBT on it might not work. And actually, you might think, oh, gosh, I'm a hopeless case and I, nobody can do anything for me. But trauma lives in the body as much as it lives in the nervous system. So we quite often need a combination of more top-down interventions, interventions that cover the mind, as well as body-based interventions to help the body process the trauma as well. 
And the sad thing is that we now see studies that people with cancer who were diagnosed with PTSD during treatment can suffer for four years or more after diagnosis with those symptoms, and, you know, really a third or more people. And that just shouldn't happen. We should be able to pick up the trauma, screen for it. And that's what I, when I teach healthcare professionals, I say, if you remember nothing about integrative oncology, one thing I want you to remember is screen your patients for trauma. Because I don't care if you remember nothing else, but if we can pick more people up, we can save them from having those experiences for months or years afterwards. And um, yeah, if you're interested in this in particular, do listen to the Synthesis Clinic podcast episode two with Dr. Cheryl Cross, who's a trauma specialist. And we talk about how much hope there is for all of this. You know, I have, for example, childhood related trauma. My cancer wasn't my traumatic experience actually. But again, we can rewire our nervous system. We can have a complete change no matter where you come from. And you don't need to have a stage four diagnosis to be traumatized by your cancer treatment or diagnosis. We all seem to be aware of the impact of medical trauma. You know, medics quite significantly underestimate the amount that our interventions, however kindly meant, affect people. You Massively. Can, hugely so. And actually, that's one thing that we really need to hold our hands up and say, treatment is traumatizing to some people. So what can we do to live in a trauma-informed world? How can we provide trauma-informed care? That means giving people choices, talking to them about it, keeping them informed, not letting things come out of the woodwork as much as possible, exhibiting empathy, you know, actually being there for somebody. So those things need to be embedded in cancer care. The trauma-informed care needs to become the bedrock of how we do cancer medicine. But on top of that, screening and then appropriate intervention. That means seeing a trauma specialist. You might need something specific like EMDR, for example. And that's the eye movement therapy that people can use. You know, there might be other trauma interventions that are needed. So it is really important that if you think you're suffering with this, you know, speak to your GP or speak to a psychologist and say, okay, I really would like to be screened for PTSD. And then I would like to be referred for an appropriate intervention. Thank you so much for your clarity, because I think there have also been so many people diagnosed during lockdown and they've had so much horrible treatment endured on their own without anyone holding their hand, without any support, without anyone sitting in on conversations with them. And that alone is really traumatizing. And so I often think we then walk away from these experiences thinking, oh my gosh, I should be doing better. I'm four years on. I should be in a much better place. But no one's helped us digest. No one's helped us deal with this. And all we think is that we're not doing very well because we're still sat here years on with all of these debilitating emotional, mental, physical symptoms. And you're right, you're cl- you're very clear. We need to ask for help. Absolutely. And I think it's nothing to do with you. You cannot actually heal trauma by yourself. Another thing that's really, really important. So trauma heal- is healed within a, sp- a specific, safe, interpersonal space quite often, okay? It's very difficult for a traumatized system to be able to self-process. It just doesn't work quite often. So it needs to be done in a environment of trust, environment of psychological safety with an appropriately trained professional who can hold you safely at the time when you start unfolding this. And you actually need to be resourced first quite often. And resourcing, I mean, providing strategies to manage your nervous system, to manage your symptoms first before we even start delving into the trauma aspect, before we start unpacking that. And the time to do it is when you have that time and space to do it, not in the middle of it all. Okay. You need the support then, but that's not when you unpack the trauma. I think somebody started a trauma intervention, uh, I think while their, their father was going through a cancer diagnosis. So that's re-triggered them. And I said, you can't do it at that point. You are being re-traumatized actively. You need the support, but you can't unpack your own trauma while you are in this environment. We need to wait we need to support you and we need to wait and unpack it in a safe space. But this is not, it's never our fault. Okay. That's one thing that's really, really important to know. And it is not your fault if you're suffering now. It is not something you can bootstrap yourself out of. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just go, oh, I'm just going to soldier on. Um, it needs to be resolved and put to bed as a proper memory. So trauma memories are living memories. Okay, It's like this is happening to you right now, this minute, every day. 
okay? They need to be put to bed and reprogrammed in the brain as normal memories, like what you had for dinner last night and whether you took that bus to work, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a proper neuropsychological intervention that needs to happen that you cannot do for yourself. Usually mm. you will need some support from somebody. Um, and I'm hugely passionate about trauma because I think it's hugely under-recognized and under-treated and under-resourced in the healthcare setting. And I can spot it. You know, it's not difficult as well for healthcare professionals to spot it. I was once on, on a Zoom consultation with one of my patients and she was describing what she was going through during COVID with her chemotherapy. And I could see her. I could see her go into fight or flight and then freeze on screen. Right. So she became agitated as a, and then she kind of almost went dead and shut down. OK, and you can see it. You can see it. And therefore, you need to help it. So we change her chemo environment. We provide her with additional support and we send her for trauma therapy. It is not difficult, but it must be done. I wonder if anyone at home is listening to you thinking, oh, my gosh, maybe I some of the symptoms I'm experiencing are a little bit like PTSD and I might want to bring that up. You can just put a yes, maybe me in the chat box um, before we round up and end this conversation. Nina, this has been so helpful and so positive and so empowering. There is so much we can do and that we don't have to suffer this alone. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so a few people are saying yes, yes, me. I'm getting quite a few direct messages. And it's interesting, isn't it? Someone is saying, this is the most incredible answer. Wow, this is definitely me. I'm going to try to get some help. Wow, I think. And so someone else, someone says, yes, yes, me. Oh, my gosh. So we started the conversation with anxiety. We talked about depression because it's such a borderline definition and we don't know. And I'm getting more yes, me and more. Oh, my gosh, I had no idea messages. Definitely. I had EMDR for it. I think I may need some more Gosh, lots of messages now of also trauma and PTSD. It's interesting where a conversation ends, isn't it, sometimes when you speak about a subject holistically. Yeah. And I think this is why we should never, in, we should always try and look at it in a broader setting rather than lab, giving somebody an anxiety label of saying, okay, actually broader, what is, you know, your mental, physical well-being like? Could it be something else? What kind of support do you need? And support the whole person rather than just trying to pick and choose symptoms that we are trying to support. Um, and trauma-wise, it will also give you some extra resources. So EMDR is one of the therapies I've mentioned. If somebody has complex trauma or CPTSD, and that's usually arises for where somebody might have childhood experience, adverse childhood experiences that then compounded by things like a cancer diagnosis, they might need a very specific type of EMDR called attachment-focused EMDR. So there's lots and lots of support available. Um, there are strategies. And if you've tried something, it hasn't worked, try again. There will be a tool that will support you. And Danny and I are here. <laughs> You're amazing. There is nothing I can add. Thank you so much for your time, Nina. Someone's just said, amazing session, huge thanks. Wow, that was a really big conversation and I wonder how you're feeling. Just before um, we stopped the recording for this conversation and the workshop, I asked everyone to turn their cameras back on. Obviously, I can't show you this for privacy reasons, but it was so wonderful to see everyone's faces and it was a real heartfelt moment. I could see that this was a difficult conversation for many. Some of the people were sitting there with tissues in their hands. I could see red eyes and my heart really opens up to all of you joining us on these workshops and listening to these conversations because just for like myself, I know these are really difficult conversations to have and they trigger so many big emotions for us, not just what happened since our cancer diagnosis, but all of our lives. You know, we are so much more than our cancer diagnosis and often people embark on a cancer diagnosis and they've already had a really tough ride. And I appreciate and hear you all. And Dr. Nina Fuller-Chevelle has been full of amazing tools and please do look in the show notes to find some of the resources. Personally, when my anxiety was really, really high, I plug myself into 10, 15 minute meditations throughout the day or even in the middle of the night when I can't be with myself because my thoughts take me to the worst case scenario. And I've got a poem 
or it's more sort of a reading that I read myself because when I'm really anxious, my thoughts just rush to the future and they're catastrophizing. And I keep thinking I'm not there yet. I haven't got the all clear or I haven't had, I'm still waiting for a scan result or what if this niggle turns out to be something. And so this reading by Jeff Foster is something that really helps me when I'm feeling heightened in my anxiety and I'm going to read it for you. You can only get there by being here. Often we focus so much on the goal or destination that we forget the journey. We disconnect from each precious step and stress is created. The sense that we are not there yet, yet joy can only be found in the here and now and has nothing to do with goals, destinations or getting what you want. Take the focus off the 10,000 steps to come the 10,000 steps you have not yet trodden, the 10,000 things that are missing right now. And remember the present step, this ancient living ground, your own intimate presence. Breathe, feel the life in your body. Often we don't know where we're headed and that's perfectly okay. Befriend any uncertainty, doubt, trepidation, Learn to love this sacred place of no answers. It is alive and creative and full of potential. And with those words that help me ground and calm a little bit at times of heightened anxiety, I also hope they help to ground and calm you a little bit. And I hope this conversation has been helpful. And as always, do stay in touch. And I see you on next week's episode.